Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! Well, nobody knows Tim McCarver uh, better than Joe Buck, and Joe's taking time out out of his vacation, which he doesn't have to do to reminisce about the great Timmy Mack, passes away today at the age of 81. Uh, Wonderful broadcaster, Hall of Famer, very good player, and Joe's broadcast partner for a lot of years, uh, what, about 17, 18 years on Fox. Joe, thank you. Uh, Nice to have you with us here. This is a sad day. I'm sure it hit you hard, too. Go ahead. Take it away for us. Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, I, I think really for a whole generation of fans that learned the game because of his hard-earned expertise, I, I think it's it's a sad day. But I I considered him part of my family. Um, I, I knew him as a little boy. Uh, I, I knew him, you know, just from being around my dad uh, when I was a kid in, in clubhouses, whether it was St. Louis or Philly or wherever it might be, they were always friends in their time together with the Cardinals in the 60s. And then flash forward to my dad doing two years of national baseball broadcasting with Tim on CBS in the early 90s. And then Fox drops out of the sky and they get baseball. Two years after, they get the football deal. And and here we are at 1996, and I'm broadcasting the World Series with Tim McCarver. Um, and, And we went 18 years and did 16 World Series together. And Leaned on each other a lot. Um, he taught me how to deal with criticism when I was in my mid-20s and what it was like to be on the national stage and, and what it took to do a game at that level um, after having been kind of the Cardinals guy for the early part of my career. And and uh, and, and he gave me instant credibility, um, you know, to, to be on that kind of a big stage and sharing baseball knowledge and, and trying to impart what I knew, which was nothing compared to what he knew and him accepting my viewpoint and, and going back and forth with me. So I owe him a huge debt of gratitude for all, for all that he did for me and with me. And I just loved him. So, and, and he knew it. Uh, so I, it's, it's a sad day, but I can't think of anybody. He reminds me of my dad. I said this to his daughter, Kathy, when we talked last night, uh, you know, he, he's like my dad and that he went out, he died with the needle on empty. There's there's nothing that I can think of that Tim said, oh, you know, someday I want to do this that he didn't do. I mean, he took ballroom dancing because it was something he always wanted to do. He took trips to places he read about and always wanted to go to. So, you know, he lived a hell of a life and, and he got 81 years out of it. And uh, I was glad to, to be a, a small part of that great life. Now, you are more than a small part, Joe. Uh, help the audience. And your father probably told you stories. He was so good a broadcaster. I don't think people realized how good a player he was. I mean, he was a, a thinking man's catcher, number one, who could figure out a way to catch Gibson and Carlton. One guy was, you know, was a big, fierce competitor. The other guy never talked to anybody. And he was a good hitter. I mean, he had a big home run in the 64 World Series. Second one year yeah. in the MVP ballot. I mean, he was a good left-hand hitter. This is a very, he, very, he played four decades. He could run. He he could run. 13 triples. This is, and he also played in four decades. And how many guys can say that? What, about 10 in the history of baseball? Give him a little, give him a little recap there. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why he was such a good analyst, because he was, as you said, a thinking man's guy behind the plate. He caught two different type pitchers, obviously, 
as you said, you know, as, as powerful a right-handed pitcher in Gibson as, as has ever come along uh, and a fierce competitor and, and somebody that I, I think I think he kind of told Tim where to sit in their relationship. And then I, I think Tim kind of took a little bit of a leadership role with Carlton. That's just my, that's just my feel. Um, but, but two totally different style pitchers, one righty, one lefty, two of the all-time greats. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you know, to see the game from back where he sat, to be a great hitter, to know how pitchers are trying to get hitters out, to be able to identify that just, just with the eye instead of standing there with a bat in his hands, I think that's what made him a great analyst. And, and so he was a hell of a player, vital part of, of great teams with the Cardinals in the 60s. Uh, and everything I said about him being a great teammate as a broadcaster is what I heard you know, from, from a lot of his teammates when I was growing up in St. Louis, uh, from the guys he played with in the 60s, just, a, a, you know, a guy that you wanted, you know, the, the trait old saying in your foxhole with you. And, and so, you know, he's, he's everything you want. And, and I would think that the overall body of work, you know, nobody analyzed more games in a World Series on national TV than Tim. And as you said, came up at the end of the 50s, and retired in the early 80s and played catcher, uh, you know, the overall body of work and, uh, and what he did for the game of baseball and, and to legions of fans, uh, I think, is, is unmatched. And, and so, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster, and, uh, you know, the overall contribution to the game is, is right up there with the all-time greats. Didn't click. I know they were good friends. Probably didn't click quite as well with your dad as he did with you. How come? I just think I, I think a couple things. Um, you know, I, I think my dad came along at a time when he was mid sixties, doing TV nationally. wasn't really his thing. He was more a radio guy, and, and I would put him up against anybody that's ever done it on the radio, baseball and football, which I think can be in some, some ways more difficult to do radio football than even baseball. But I, I, I just think it was foreign to him a little bit. And Tim was, was the powerful guy. I mean, that was at a time when he was hosting Olympics uh, on CBS. So he, he was a powerful guy. And I'm not sure, you know, initially that was supposed to be Brent Musburger and Tim. And then Brent, you know, his time at CBS ended. So my dad was supposed to do the number two game with Jim Cott, which I think would have been a much better fit. Uh, and, and there were times where they didn't see eye to eye. I, I think they, they were uh, in a position at CBS with the production team that was uh, maybe not a good fit either for the two of them. So, you know, I, I will say this. When Tim and I were paired together, and then this is in my book, and so I've talked about it publicly, but when Tim and I were paired together, uh, my dad was the biggest fan of that because he knew that his son, me, at 27 years old, doing the World Series, you know, even though he thought I could handle it, I wasn't sure that I could. And he knew that whatever was going to happen on the field, Tim had been there, done it, seen it, broadcast it. I was in great hands with Tim McCarver's as my analyst. So he was the biggest fan of Tim being my partner. And, and I know from talking to Tim and Mike Shannon, my longtime broadcast partner and my dad's broadcast partner for 50 years uh, on the Cardinals radio, 
that Mike called Tim and said, you know, your your relationship and your interaction with Jack is going to be much different than it will be with Joe. And so there I was at 27 talking to Tim at our first seminar going, look, I know you and my dad have a history. You know, you know, my dad is my best friend and my hero, but you and I are going to forge our own relationship and we're going to sink or swim on how we do together. You and me, none of that matters. Um, and, and we had, you know, a handshake and, and then pretty soon handshakes turned to hugs and, and, you know, there he was in my wedding, uh, standing up for me. So it, it, it was just as good a relationship on air and off air as, as we could have had. Joe Buck, of course, on the passing of Tim McCarver. Joe worked with him, as you just heard, many a World Series, 16, 96, I believe, was their first one. Uh, you know what I loved about him as an analyst, uh, uh, Joe? He did not overwhelm the game. You know, he let the game breathe a little bit. When he had something to say, you knew it was significant. All right, McCarver's got something to say here. That's just what he has to say. He did not, he never stepped on the play-by-play guys. Never did he ever, you know, hoop and yell and scream on a big play with the play-by-play guy trying to get the call out. He kind of stayed out of the way. And then when he had something to say, he was forceful. He believed in his beliefs and he said it, but then he got out. He didn't drive you crazy and ram it home and ram it home and ram it home. That's my remembrance of him doing all those games. Do I have that read correctly? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and as the play-by-play guy sitting next to him, I always felt that. You know, he was old school in that way. And, and I, I think that's kind of dissipating over the years. And it's not just in baseball, but, you know, he picked his spots. And, and if a play happened or pitch happened or whatever, and he didn't have anything to say, he didn't force it. But, yeah, he, he was old school in that, you know, once the pitch happens, it's the play-by-play guy calling the pitch and the action, and then it was his time to kind of go through the replays. And and I really think he looked at, at his job as the broadcaster as, as being a teacher. You know, he had very strong opinions on how the game should be played and how the game should be managed. And he was not afraid to be critical. And at times, you know, that that would get him, you know, on the bad list with certain players and managers, but he was the first guy through the door the next day to face that music, so to speak. He never ducked any of that because I think he knew that, you know, he had spent his life in the game. And if he had an opinion, it was never unfair and he could defend what his position was on the air, but he was always willing to listen to whatever a player or manager had to say back at him. So, you know, he, he just did it the right way, and, and he was a great person for me to learn from, uh, you know, when I was in my mid-20s. And you said that. I read the quotes. I mean, I learned more about baseball than him than I did from my father, and that's saying something when you consider who your dad was. How about the seamless transition that he had to make from being a player to a broadcaster? I mean, I had uh, Costas on TV today, and I did not realize, uh, Joe, that he did some games with Bob in 1980 when he was still an active player. So his first ever game was the Angels and the Red Sox. Yaskrimski and Carew were in the game. And then he went back to go play for the Phillies, which I, I, I was not aware of that. Boy, I wouldn't happen today, I tell you. But boy, oh boy, think about that for a second. The seamless transition, player broadcaster, player broadcaster that he pulled off at the end of his playing career. Talk about that for a sec. Well, you know who else did that recently, and, and really the only exception to that rule is Greg Olson. Greg Olson did that when he was playing for the Carolina Panthers on his bye week. 
and and I think it says a lot for people who, you know, they're 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 planning ahead. They're thinking about the next move. And so I, I've we were in the truck many a time before the games, watching old video of him doing funny stuff for the Phillies broadcast when he was still playing. Um, so it, it was it's Smoltz. Smoltz was the same way too. He was a guy that. TBS would have on Adam Wainwright is a guy that, you know, when we would interview guys from the dugout, um, you know, you just know that, that certain guys have it. If they want to do it, Wainwright, Verlander, Torrey Hunter, guys like that, that, that just fought the game as well as played it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that was probably the secret to his success as he got older as a player, he was thinking about that transition into the next phase of his life and was able to take what he was doing every day as a player and apply that to how am I going to be as a broadcaster. So I, you know, I, I think that, that he was smart that way, and, and there are a handful of guys that, that have done that, but, but not many, for sure. Uh, uh, very, very good also at analyzing a play and getting it right, and then it happens. And none of this Tony Romo nonsense. I mean, I remember that Cabrera hit against uh, against uh, Belinda in the, this is before you, in that 92 game seven, he was all over that fastball that hit in the left field. Yeah. And then the famous one four years later with you in the booth about the infield in with Jeter and Gonzalez. And he said, you know what, geez, with the cutter, a lot of bloops. And the next pitch, he hits the ball over Jeter's head that basically doesn't reach the outfield grass right next to you in one of those early World Series for you there, Joe. Talk about that. His ability at times to say something and then all of a sudden, boom, there it goes and it happens. That's his catching mentality. How about that? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's what made him a good catcher because he sat back there and he looked at defensive alignments and he thought about, you know, how a pitcher was trying to get a hitter out. And if a pitcher was trying to bust him inside with fastballs, you know, is this guy going to get around uh, on a pitch? And, and should the outfield be playing him to pull? Probably not. Let's shade him the opposite way and the same on the infield. So I, yeah, that's how he looked at the game. And that moment that happened in 2001, which was just a hell of a world series in a crazy, awful and uplifting time in our country's history uh, to, to predict in essence how the world series could end. And then it happens on the very next pitch uh, with the jam shot that Luis Gonzalez hits into the, shallow outfield behind the shortstop position uh, it was unbelievable it's just, it's the best moment i've ever seen or heard forget sat next to of, of any analyst in any sport uh, that wow. i've seen on tv wow. and then i wow. you know when you predict that stuff uh, in a game like baseball where the ball could go anywhere uh and and you make that point before it actually happens I remember that ball. I think he and I high-fived each other just for the TV moment uh, before that ball hit the grass. And it was like, God bless. You, you just can't do it any better than that. And right. uh, I, I was proud of him then. I was proud of him countless times. Um, you know, I, I, I just I think the world of him. And, and he, he, like I said earlier, he just became kind of a part of my family, which uh, – which, you know, he watched my girls grow up and, and uh, you know, I, I knew his girls from back when we were in spring training and he was broadcasting the Mets in St. Pete. My dad was doing the Cardinals in St. Pete. 
and we rented a place right next to them. So I known him my whole life. And then to spend 18 years with him in a broadcast booth uh, was just a dream. I know it's before you too. And I took his side because I thought Dion was, was, was not right. That's a famous scene. I'm sure he was a little embarrassed by being in the middle of a big news story. How about uh, the Dion bucket of water instance in the 92 World Series? And he was right. Dion played football in the daytime and then played in the World Series game. And Tim didn't like that. He did not like the regular season football being ahead of a World Series game. Said it. He got mad, Dion. And during a post game. Dumped the water on his head, which I thought was the wrong thing to do. Any comments on that for a sec? Yeah, and I did it a couple times. I think I, you know, he and I didn't talk much about that. I, I, that was one of the things that I just kind of left out there. That was at a time when he was with Sean McDonough, um, and and it, it just was nothing that we ever dissected. I think it might be one of the only things that we that we didn't really go through in our time together, but I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I take his side. I, I think if you watch back what he actually said about Dion, it, it wasn't over the top. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't cruel. It wasn't, I, I, I just, I, it wasn't that big of a, of a, of a comment to warrant that, but you know, you, you live and learn and I'm sure, you know, I wonder how Dion feels about that. I've never talked to Dion about that. Um, but it's it's just a part of it's a part of his history, and uh, I don't think he regrets reacting the way he did when Dion did that. Um, so you know, Dion chose to do that, and, and Tim, I thought, reacted really well in the moment, live on TV, or whether that was caught live and the broadcaster was caught after the fact. I don't know. I don't really remember, but. Um, you know, him saying, yeah, you're a real man, Dion, or whatever he said. That's what he said. That's because right, Tim Joe. Was, you're right. That's what yeah, he said. Yeah, I mean, Tim was not in a position really to defend himself because he's standing there with a microphone trying to interview players in the victorious locker room. So, yeah, he, yeah that's what he said. It is what it is. That stuff happens. Yeah, that's what he said. A couple more before you go. One, the great broadcaster or the analyst can always transition to the next network when the rights are up. Billy Packer did it, Madden did it, and McCarver did it. That tells you how great he is that the network that gets the rights in the next negotiation deal wants to take the analyst who did the games with the old network. I think that is a sign yeah, that the guy's sure pretty bet. good. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a sure bet. You know, it's it's. I think the the number one example of that was Madden because Fox, you know, everybody was freaking out when Fox got the rights to cover the NFC and Rupert Murdoch and David Hill said, Oh, you're worried about it. Well, we just got Pat Summerall and John Madden. It's like, Oh, okay. We're everything's fine because you're just, you're buying instant credibility and, and, and somebody who, you know, can handle the job. You're not, you know, hiring some unknown. So yeah, I, I think, I think that's a good point that it, it says everything you need to know Forget, uh, forget about fan criticism or you don't like my team or you're too mean about player X, you know, whatever that stuff is. When, when the money counted and network executives pay these huge rights fees, the next move was let's go get Tim. And, and you're right. So he, he bounced around because the rights bounce around. 
And then when the rights didn't bounce around, he stayed at Fox until, you know, late in his years in 2013. So that tells you all you need to know that the people that, that are paid to make high multi-million dollar, at least with regards to rights fees, billion dollar decisions, uh, they, they, they spoke with their wallet and that was what's good to get Tim McCarver. And not a lot of fanfare by him at that World Series when he retired. I remember it. You know, I want to make, I wanted to teach you a little something about baseball, but he did not like the attention with the World Series turned on him because it was his last one. And you sat there and listened to him. I'm sure he prepared something that morning. It probably was game six, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and you probably, you know, yeah, he prepared something. Yeah, in Boston. You, I, you listened and you did a good job there, and he just did his thing. But it wasn't a lot of fanfare there. It was the first Red Sox World Series in that ballpark that they had won. Maybe that had something to do with it. But in typical McCarver fashion, he kind of low-keyed it, Joe. Help me with that. I think he was emotional. I, I think he was scared that if he started, and I never spoke about this with him after the fact, and we spoke plenty after the fact, but I, I think he was scared that he would become emotional, and, and therefore he just kept it simple. So I said what I said. I spoke from the heart, didn't really prepare it, didn't want to prepare it because I didn't want to mess it up and miss line two of my soliloquy that I prepared for Tim. So I just said, I'm, when the game ends, I'm just going to talk from the heart about what he has meant to me, what he's meant to Fox, what he's meant to baseball and the World Series and the national stage and 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 just kind of did my little 45 seconds. And I was waiting. I was waiting for him to react. And all he, all he said was ditto. And, and I think the reason was because he was emotional. And, and I, I'm not sure he was at that point ready to hang up the national cape, but uh, that time had come. And, and so that, that was his one-word response. And, and to me, that just because I know how emotional he could get, uh, that, that's what that was in, in my mind. And, uh, and Joe, what you said at the beginning is very interesting. Uh, he got every ounce out of his 81 years. You know, the average fan wouldn't realize that. You know, his curiosity, I know he did music albums and everything else grow up in a, growing up in Memphis, Tennessee. But if you get the most out of what the Lord gives you and you get every ounce of it, you've had a hell of a life. And that's Tim McCarver, right? Totally. I mean, he, I mean, he hung out with Elvis, for God's sake. Um, and, and he was a player, as you said, for in four different decades. And he, you know, was a world champion and he called more world series on TV than any analyst in the history of major league baseball. And he traveled and he loved wine and he loved having fun and he loved to dance and he loved to sing. I mean, that, you know, I, I, I don't know what more he could have done with his time on earth than what he did with it. I, I just, I, and I said that to Kathy last night that, uh, you know, your dad, your dad lived a great life and we, we should all be that lucky. We should all be that fulfilled. We should all be that content. So, you know, his bucket list didn't have a lot of things to check off anymore. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm hoping, you know, I sit here at 53 uh, I'm hoping that I can say the same or somebody can say the same about me whenever that time comes. 
Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.